0: Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast with a continuing series, Extra Ordinary. In scripture it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces complete the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with everlasting glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. In a world filled with vain and empty striving, Christ's glory not only humbles us, but promises the power to transform us. This is what we'll explore with a message titled Extraordinary Glory. Here's Associate Pastor Josh Masters. Well, good morning, Brookwood Church.
1: Are you excited? Are you excited to be here this morning? I guess they thought the entrance was so good we should do it again. I'm so, so grateful that you are here and I'm grateful that I get to be here with you. My name is Josh Masters. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookwood Church and we are so grateful that you're joining us, whether this is your first time here or you've been coming for decades, we're glad that you're here. Today we are continuing our series, uh, our summer series called Extraordinary or Extraordinary, depending on how you wanna say it. And throughout the summer we have been exploring some of the interactions that Jesus Christ had with his disciples and what that can teach us about how ordinary people can step into extraordinary moments with Jesus. And we've seen lots of incredible miracles as we've walked through the series. But in, I think that next to the resurrection itself, the passage that we're gonna look at today is probably the most extraordinary thing that happens in the New Testament and probably in scripture. Do you have any thoughts? What might be the most extraordinary? What's that? The birth of Jesus is extraordinary. The resurrection is obviously the most extraordinary. Transfiguration. The transfiguration, The yes, 50 Brookwood points to you. We're gonna talk about the transfiguration today. It's a moment called the Transfiguration and it's when Christ just for a few moments removed the veil that he placed over himself when he became a human being and he allows three of the disciples, only three, to see him in his true full glory. Now, glory is a difficult word for us to grab hold of today because most of us have not ever experienced or witnessed true glory. As human beings, we equate glory with achievements and power, things that you can achieve, things that you can work toward, something you can attain. We use it to describe championship athletes or people who are extremely successful in business. And for much of human history, victory in battle has been called glory. It's glorious to win in battle, glory. The glory of battle but none of that is true glory all of that is a false counterfeit glory because true glory is not an achievement you can reach it is a state of being found only in the majesty and the nature of god and the hebrew word for glory it's such a beautiful word and it and it is so closely tied to the word beauty and honor distinction royalty and we only chase after a false counterfeit glory in our lives because we feel disconnected from the perfect glory of Jesus and when we may try to manufacture our own glory we fall short and then when we fall short in trying to create our own glory we feel even more distant from God yet we're designed God designed us to seek His glory. And even more than that, He designed us to share in His glory. Look at the theme verse at the top of your outline. It says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed by his glory to share in his glory. And this world is filled with vain, empty striving, trying and trying to find significance in our life. But Christ's glory not only humbles us, It promises the power to transform us. And that's our theme today. That's what we're going to be looking at today. To be transformed, we must experience Christ's glory. To be transformed, we must experience Christ's glory. So we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church, do we want to encounter his glory or do we want to continually seek our own glory? We'll be in Matthew 17 today, so you can go ahead and turn or swipe there in your Bibles. If you're using the Bible available here in the Brookwood Bookstore, it's on page 787. And we'll start right at the top uh, at verse 1 of chapter 17. And as you turn there or swipe there, uh, let me set the scene a little bit for you. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus has just explained, and he had to explain this to them several times because they couldn't fully grasp it. But Jesus has just explained to the disciples that he is going to Jerusalem where he will suffer and be killed and then raised from the dead on the third day. And the disciples protest this, especially Peter. They protest this and they say, no, surely not, God, because they wanted the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Surely you won't be killed. But Jesus says, no, I must be. I must be. And after they protest, Jesus says this at the end of chapter 16. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father, right? He can only come in his full glory after the crucifixion. And will judge all the people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. That's a little bit of a confusing verse, right? Because out of context, at the end of the chapter, it, it makes you question. You, people take it out of context and they say, well, if the Bible is true, then what about this verse? Right, because all of those men are dead and Jesus hasn't returned yet. But remember that there were no chapter breaks when this was written. It was one continuous story So when we stop at the end of chapter 16, we don't realize that that promise is tied to the next paragraph, which is the beginning of chapter 17 for us. That's where our passage begins, chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. So without the chapter break, if you get rid of the chapter break, then that statement six days later, that's what ties what's about to happen to the promise Jesus just made, that some of these men would see him coming into his kingdom before they die. So Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up to the mountaintop, specifically, it says, so that they can be alone with him. And then this happens, verse 2. As the men watch... Jesus' appearance was transformed. Some translations are going to say transfigured. Jesus was transfigured. His appearance was transfigured so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now, we've talked about some incredible things in this series, miracles that set Jesus apart from ordinary men. But until now, Jesus has looked like an ordinary man at least, to these guys. But now he's revealing his true self, his true glory. And make no mistake, this is a conquering, victorious, glory-filled Messiah that they are seeing. Because the language that is used here parallels the description that is of Jesus in the book of Revelation when Jesus comes as the judge and the conqueror to make all things right, this is a conquering, glorious Messiah that they're witnessing. The same is in the book of Revelation. The terrifying beauty of Christ's glory is the source of all justice and all light. And it's hard to imagine how Peter, James, and John would even deal. How could they comprehend what they were seeing? But before they have time to even let their brains wrap, wrap around what is happening, something else extraordinary happens. Verse 3. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. So they're seeing the fully glorified Messiah, the promised Christ that they've been waiting for for thousands of years. And now Moses and Elijah, the two most revered men of the Old Testament, are standing there with him. And Luke's account actually tells us what they were talking about. Matthew only tells us that Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking, but Luke adds this. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are standing on this mountaintop discussing the plan of salvation. Christ's exodus from this world. And do you, think, do you think it's a mistake that they use the word exodus? No. No, it's not a mistake they use the word exodus. Moses, who is standing there with the promised Messiah, Moses led God's people in an exodus out of Egypt, and now Jesus is about to lead his children in an exodus out of death itself. When Moses came down from being with God on Mount Sinai, his face was transfigured. It it shined, it shone. Moses had to wear a veil because the glory of God was reflecting off his own face. And now Christ is transfigured. But his light is not a reflection. It's the source of light. The light that the Israelites saw shining off from Moses' face thousands of years before was this light. Moses only reflected the brilliance of glory that the disciples now are seeing in the true glory of Jesus Christ. And how did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the two most revered men in Jewish scriptures are now standing before them with a glorified Messiah. And to the disciples, there would be no doubt The presence of a glorified Christ along with Moses and Elijah would signify that God's kingdom had finally come. All the requirements for the Messiah to appear in victory had been fulfilled. And what's the very first response we see from these men? It's worship. Their first response to this revelation is worship. Because experiencing Christ's glory requires worship. That's your feeling. Experiencing Christ's glory requires worship. We are transformed when we enter a true place of worship and encounter Christ's glory. We are transformed when we enter a true place of worship and encounter Christ's glory. Verse 4, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it is wonderful for us to be here. And if you want, I will make shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him the disciples were terrified and they fell on their face down on the ground when you are exposed to the glory of Christ it will require worship but even more than that it will demand worship it will compel you to worship and there are two types of worship that we see here in these couple verses. We see an act of service and surrender. Service and surrender. There's also a third type of worship that we'll talk about in a minute. But first, Peter offers an act of service. He wants to build shelters for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Moses. And Luke actually adds that Peter said this without even thinking, he just, he just blurted it out, which was Peter's way, but also because when he was exposed to this glory, he had to do something, he, he had to respond in some way. He had to do something in response to the glory. And the word Peter actually used is not shelters, it's tabernacle. The NLT doesn't give us a very good translation there. It's important that the word is tabernacle because it's an act of worship. Now, certainly, if Peter had fully understood what was going on, if he had full comprehension, he would have only offered an act of worship, a tabernacle to Jesus Christ, and not Moses and Elijah as well. But ultimately, Jesus doesn't want Peter to build him a tabernacle, primarily because Christ's earthly reign had not yet come. But despite that, you have to understand that when you see the glory of Christ in your life, you should be compelled to worship through acts of service. We need people to help with the hoedown. Come serve our special needs community. But more importantly, ask God where he's asking you to serve continually. It's a voluntary but automatic response to the power and the love of Jesus Christ. But there's also an involuntary act of worship, a worship of surrender and reverence. That's what we see when the disciples hear the Father's voice. The Father says, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Where else have we heard the Father say that? There was another time he spoke from heaven and said the same thing. Where, when was it? At his baptism, that's right. 20 Brookwood points to you. Yeah, at the baptism. But this time, the father adds a line. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. You know where that comes from? That phrase comes directly from the prophecy Moses, who is now standing next to the Messiah, spoke about the coming Messiah in Deuteronomy 18. It comes directly from that prophecy. And I put the passages there in your outline if you want to look at it later. Every moment of this encounter is proof to the disciples that everything written in the Jewish Scriptures, everything written in the Torah, everything written in the Tanakh, which is what we call the Old Testament, everything in the Jewish Scriptures is true and being fulfilled before their very eyes. They're witnessing the fulfillment. And what do they do when they hear the Father's voice? What happens? They fall down on their face. Prostrate, in terror. It's an involuntary response to the authority and the holiness of God. Listen, this is not a very popular thing to say in the Western church. It's not a popular thing to say in the American church. But if we never find ourselves in the church worshiping God with fear, and reverence, then we haven't experienced the glory of God. And the church will not experience the power of God. There must be reverence and there must be a response to his holiness. Yes, God is a God of love. He is the essence of love. He is the definition of love, but he is also holy and terrifying. In the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. How many people love the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? In the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, when Lucy learns about Aslan, and Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia, she asks, is he safe? Is this lion safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king. And Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is not a tame lion for us to lead around in the circus of our lives. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the master of all. He is the creator of the universe, and one day he will come to judge Every person confronted by God's holiness in the scriptures is driven to their knees and tries to hide because of their sin. How did we lose that? How did we lose that kind of worship in the modern church? It's because we stopped seeking his glory and only want his grace. Grace. But you, you cannot have his grace without his glory. The beauty and the salvation of his grace comes from his terrifying glory. That he is the only one powerful enough to deliver. Have you ever, for those of you who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ here today, have you ever felt that prompting from the holy spirit to do something but you resisted it and you know when the holy spirit is prompting you to do something but you resist it you try not to surrender to it what happens you get that you get that uncomfortable feeling in your chest right that uncomfortable feeling in your body that's just the smallest glimpse the tiniest glimmer of this type of fear and reverence and it comes so subtly because we are responding or we are not responding to the Holy Spirit's still, small voice. But what would happen in this church and what would happen in the upstate and what would happen in the state of South Carolina and out into the rest of the country if we stopped not only resisting the still, small voice, but if we opened our eyes and our hearts to hear the big voice? What if we started to seek the full voice of God and surrender to his glory and worship in a way that we were transformed and made new? We have to ask him to show us his glory as as much as we can stand without blowing up. Surrender in fear and reverence. And then there's also a third type of worship that Christ's glory brings and we don't see it in this passage but I I bring it up because it's important and because it's coming for these men. We may not see it in this passage but it's coming for these three men and that's worship of sacrifice. JC talked about choosing extravagant sacrificial worship a couple weeks ago when he taught us about the woman who anointed Jesus with the perfume and for her It was a sacrifice of a family heirloom, likely, and surrender of great wealth. For these men, these three men, the coming sacrifice is imprisonment and death. Imprisonment and death, something that they could only embrace or endure if they had experienced the glory of Jesus Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Remember, as Jesus reveals his glory here, he's talking to Elijah and Moses. What what did we say he was talking to them about? The exodus from this earth, which is his sacrifice, right? The ultimate sacrifice to bring salvation. And part of our worship, part of our worship toward that sacrifice is participating in Christ's suffering in our own sacrifices. Look at 1 Peter. Rejoice as you share in the suffering of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with his great joy when his glory is revealed. And Peter writes that as a man who had witnessed Christ's glory. So, in some form or fashion, if we are exposed and we are experiencing the glory of Christ, we will also experience all three types of worship. They must be part of who we are, part of our identity. This is not in your outline, but write this down. It's like a mini outline. Christ's glory compels us to worship through service, surrender, and sacrifice. Service in love, surrender in fear, sacrifice through his power. And that can be a little intimidating, isn't it? But here's the thing. God prepares you as he leads you. He will give you the strength and the direction for everything that he's asking you to do. Go to him in prayer and say, God, I I don't even know how to start this. I don't know how to do this. And honestly, I'm afraid to experience your glory. But give me just a glimpse of who you are a glimpse of who you are and then ask him, God, how do you want me to serve? Reveal your glory to me in a way that I feel compelled to where you're calling me and what you're calling me to do. And then ask God, what do you want me to sacrifice? Reveal your glory to me in such a way that I desire you more than the thing you're asking me to give up. And maybe the first sacrifice If this is what he tells you, maybe it's time or entertainment, so that you can enter into a day of Sabbath with God, like we talked about a few weeks ago. And I know, I know that the question of sacrifice is hard. It's it's a rough question. So how about something easier? I'll give you an easier step to start. How about taking the step to come to church early on Sunday? And take time to prepare your heart for worship. Rather than coming in on the second or third song, be here early. Bring your coffee, get your coffee, get your books situated, do all that, but do it before. So that you can be prepared to worship God. God wants to say something to you. God wants to say something to us as a church and we're squandering it. We squander it when we think worship is just the opening act. And come on Sunday morning, I know this is the 11 o'clock crowd and the idea of coming here twice seems crazy, but what would God do in your life if you came at 8.15 and prayed with us in the morning and then went to breakfast with your family and then came back for the 11 o'clock? We pray every morning at 8.15, and Perry constantly says, and I agree with him, it's the most important thing that we do on Sunday morning, and this room should be full. So come join us. And Perry often says, come once a month. If you can't come every week, come once a month. But I'm saying, come, come. And then ask God as you're praying and as you're preparing your heart before the worship begins, ask God to reveal himself as we worship together to open our hearts, all of us together, to what he wants to say to us in the message, both individually and as a church. Be intentional about worship. Christ's glory may compel us to worship, it may bring us to worship, but coming into worship intentionally yourself invites glory into our lives. Worship is the first step. And we've already, for the last few minutes, we've already been talking about the second thing on your outline. We've already started, and it's this experiencing Christ's glory reveals God's nature experiencing Christ's glory reveals God's nature. The reason we're compelled to worship when we experience Christ's glory is because it reveals his nature. In this series, we've explored how Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one God. They're one God, completely connected with one will and complete with sovereignty. So when we see a glimpse of Christ's glory, we are confronted with the true and complete nature of God himself. Look at verse five again, starting in about the middle of it. A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell on their face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and he touched them. Remember that, he touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus. The Father and Christ are one. So don't miss this. The very God who terrifies them is the same God who approaches them and touches them and comforts them. The holiness of God brings fear, but the grace of God brings redemption. Jesus is the healing balm that binds a holy, perfect, terrifying God with an unholy, broken, fearful person. So yes, Christ's glory should frighten us, the holiness of God should drive us to our knees and convict us of our sins, but the full nature of God is also comforting. Once we are convicted, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Stand up. Let me walk with you. I'm here with you. Christ's glory reveals the identity the authority and the heart of the full triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Justice with grace. Holiness with compassion. Jesus came on a rescue mission so that we could have restoration and intimacy with God, both now and in eternity. And how did he do that? He did it by laying down his glory. For a short time, it was only a short time, but he laid down his glory to live a perfect human life and then be sacrificed on our behalf. I think one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament comes out of Philippians. It's actually a song. It's designed to be sung. And it says this, Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He laid down his glory. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. But then what happened? Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee would bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, amen. Amen. By veiling his glory... Christ was elevated to the highest honor. Do you understand the significance of that? All of creation was formed through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe of creation. Jesus Christ is the word of God itself. The word became flesh. Jesus was honored and worshipped and revered and feared in the heavenly realm. Surrounded by angels and heavenly beings bowing down before him. But he took all that glory and he laid it down to bring you hope and to bring more glory to the Father. I love the way R.C. Sproul put it. We're going to put it up on the screen. He wrote this, that the glory of Christ shone forth at the transfiguration should not surprise us. The surprise is that He willingly veiled His glory for the sake of His children. When we're exposed to the nature of God in his glory, we are transformed because his holiness convicts us and his grace restores us. Listen, some of us in this room and some of you I know that are watching in our online campus are afraid to encounter God's glory because you can only see the coming judgment. But listen to me. Shame is not a tool of God. It's a lie of the enemy preventing you from pursuing a healing relationship with Jesus Christ. When God convicts you of your sin, it's not followed by condemnation. He doesn't follow the conviction with condemnation. Instead, he reaches out and he touches you. And he says, get up, don't be afraid. The question is are you willing to walk back down the mountain with him? Are you willing after he puts out his hand to you to walk back down into the mountain and into your life and walk with him? Will you trust his promises? Will you trust his plan even when you don't understand it, even when parts of it are painful? That's the last fill-in on your outline. Experiencing Christ's glory reaffirms his promises and his plan. The lies that we believe from the enemy about ourselves, about our circumstances, the lies that we believe from the world or our past hurts or our past trauma or our past pain will try to drag us away from the hope of Christ's nature. So to be transformed, we have to seek his glory. We have to pursue his glory and be reminded of his glory. Because the revelation of his glory is the assurance and the affirmation of his unfailing promises and plan. We continue in verse 9. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Jesus didn't want them to tell anyone? What's that? I think you're mumbling on purpose because you don't want to be wrong. There are no wrong answers. There's, There's incorrect answers, but there's no wrong answers. It wasn't God's time. That's exactly right. 50 Brookwood points to you. It wasn't God's time. That's the most likely reason is that if word got out about this glorified, powerful, military Messiah, the people would have overthrown the religious leaders and made Jesus king. There were other times they tried to make him king, but it wasn't time. It wasn't time for him to wear that crown. He will one day. One day he'll wear that crown, but first he wanted to surrender to the crown of thorns. One day he will sit on the throne of David and rule, but not yet. His glory works all things together, not only for good, but in his perfect timing. God's timing can be trusted. Verse 10 Then the disciples asked him, Why? do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the messiah comes jesus replied elijah in, is indeed coming first to get everything ready but i tell you elijah has already come but he wasn't recognized and they chose to abuse him and in the same way they will make they will also make the son of man suffer then the disciples realized that he was talking about john the baptist okay you got four hours for us to discuss this prophecy? I'll try to shorten it. The book of Malachi prophesies that Elijah would return and prepare the way for the Messiah, right? Malachi said that Elijah would return and prepare the way for the Messiah. And yes, the idea of John the Baptist fulfilling the role of Elijah is a little bit confusing. Actually, it's a lot confusing. But Luke explains that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to do that work. And if you look at their lives and their ministries, there's a great deal of parallel between John the Baptist and Elijah. The way they lived, what they wore, the way they approached their ministry, there's a lot of parallels. But look closely at what Jesus says. Look back at these verses. Um, verse 11, look at verse 11. He says, Elijah is indeed coming, future tense, and has already come, past tense. So, it seems, and this is true with a lot of biblical prophecies, it seems that there was a partial, smaller fulfillment of the prophecy through John the Baptist, and yet there's a greater fulfillment through Elijah yet to come. That's especially true because in the prophecy in Malachi. It specifically says that Elijah will preach, and when he preaches, he will preach before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Has the dreadful day of the Lord come yet? Not yet. That's describing his second coming, so perhaps Elijah comes then to prepare as well. And we could spend a month honestly exploring that prophecy and breaking it apart and saying what it means and what different scholars mean, but here's what we need to know today is that the the appearance of Elijah at the transfiguration and the explanation of John the Baptist's role in Christ's first appearance confirms all the promises of the Old Testament. Everything that God promised is true and is coming forth. The timing of God is reliable. The word of God is reliable. The promise of his return is reliable, and his promise to us is reliable. The revelation of Christ's glory confirmed that everything he'd promised Israel could be trusted, and so we too can trust that every promise that he's made us will come true, even when we don't know the details, even when we don't know how it's going to unfold. Look at what John wrote, having experienced the transfiguration, having been there on this day, he later writes, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know this, that we will be like him and we will see him as he really is. And John wrote that having seen Jesus as he really is. We will be made to be like him sharing in his glory. Jesus himself said to the Father, I have given them, meaning us, given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. We share in the same glory. He offers us the same glory that he's showing Peter, James and John on this mountaintop. And in fact, the Greek word that Matthew uses for transfiguration or for transform in the NLT, The word is metamorpho, metamorpho. Where do we, what do we get from that? Metamorphosis. But metamorpho only appears four times in the New Testament. It's that important of a word. It only shows up four times, twice to describe the transfiguration and twice to describe our transfiguration. The same word used to describe Christ's glory in the transfiguration here is the word that's used in our theme verse at the top of your outline. We are being made transfigured, metamorpho. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And it's also used in Romans 12 too. Be transformed, be transformed, transfigured into a new person by the renewal of your mind twice to describe Jesus's glory and twice to describe our our transformation into glory the glory of Jesus Christ is what allows our transformation into his image and into his glory to share in his glory will we seek it we go after it because the problem in the modern church is that when Jesus first came to earth he chose to veil his glory but now that he's offering his glory the church is veiling it we must seek his glory if we're to be the church he wants us to be and we've reached the end of our passage. But there's one other thing I wanted to share with you, something that I've always loved about this passage, one of my favorite pieces, and it's so rarely drawn attention to. It's a picture of God's perfect grace and perfect mercy and we never talk about it. Before this encounter, before what we're reading here, when was the last time we saw Moses in the Bible? When did we last see Moses in the Bible? What's that? In the Old Testament? When? Looking at the promised land, not in the promised land. That's exactly right. It was at the end of Deuteronomy. The last time we see Moses is at the end of Deuteronomy when God showed Moses the promised land. but didn't allow Moses to lead his children in because of Moses' sin. Moses failed God. And Moses traveled 40 years only to see the promised land from a distance but die in Moab. And that failure is remarkably sad. But where is Moses standing now? In the promised land. In this passage, we find Moses on top of a mountain, back on the mountaintop with his promised Messiah in the promised land that he wasn't supposed to be able to enter. Jesus brought him in, listen very carefully, Christ's grace and mercy is greater than your failure. Moses' story didn't end with his failure, it ended with the victory of Jesus Christ. And you can be on the mountaintop too no matter what your past is, no matter what your hurt is, God is inviting you. We're going to pray in a moment, but I want to tell you, don't put your stuff away yet. In a moment, we're going to pray, but I want to tell you, if you need help climbing that mountain, if you need help finding that glory, then we're going to have pastors and care volunteers down front. We're in the Care Connection room, if you're in our online campus, they'll reach out in the online chat and someone will reach out to you. We have to seek God's glory. Your failure doesn't prevent you from participating in his glory. Get up. Don't be afraid. Get up and don't be afraid. Go seek God's glory and let's see what God does through Brookwood Church. Father God, you are glorious. You are filled with grace and mercy, but you are also holy and just. And we confess, Lord, that we have veiled your glory open our eyes and make us desire your glory above whatever it is that we're trying to put in front of you and then make us a people that carry that glory outside these walls into the outstate, into the state into this nation and around the world with all of our partners so that your glory can be revealed give us a desire for it give us a heart for it teach us how to see your glory And then respond to your glory with service and surrender and sacrifice. And we ask this with authority, the authority that is given to us through the glory of Jesus Christ. And we say together, amen.
0: We're so grateful that you joined us for this week's podcast. In your spiritual practice this week, find a quiet place to read slowly through Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Pay close attention to the details and try to imagine yourself in the scene. Allow yourself to be open and available to God. Ask Him to draw you into His presence and reveal Himself in whatever way He wants. Notice what rises up in you as you read and focus on God's radiant glory to respond to Him in prayer. Next week, we'll continue the series, Extraordinary. And to prepare, read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. You can watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or even search through the message archives. Visit brickwoodchurch.org slash media or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Extraordinary series. Thanks for listening and have a great week.